Good morning, H2O Church. How are you guys doing? Good? Good. It's so good to be here with you this morning. It's so good to see all of you this morning. Um, I'm glad that uh, all of you who are playing Survivor over the weekend survived. Um, I, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more, uh, more about that. Uh, if you don't know already, uh, my name is Trevor. I'm one of the staff members here at H2O Church Cincinnati, and I'm going to be bringing the word to you here this morning. Uh, and over the course of the summer, we've been, waking, uh, we've been making our way through the book of Acts in the Bible, uh, here on Sunday mornings and also on Thursdays at Life Group as well. And on our journey through the book of Acts so far, we've studied and we've talked about the birth of the Christian church after the ascension of Christ, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and who the Holy Spirit is, the miraculous conversion of the Apostle Paul, the intense persecutions that many early Christians experienced, what many of the early Christians devoted themselves to, God miraculously freeing Paul, Silas, and Peter from prison on multiple occasions, and a number of other really awesome stories as well. And here this morning, we're going to be continuing in our study of the book of Acts. The main passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning comes from Acts chapter 19, okay? Um, But before we dive into that passage uh, that we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, I want to let you know how I'm going to be approaching this sermon today. Um, What we're going to be doing is this. It's very simple. We're just going to be opening up our Bibles, and we're simply just going to walk through this passage piece by piece together, kind of like a Bible study. And as we walk through this passage together, I'm going to be pointing out, highlighting, and teaching on some of the important and significant things that we see in the passage I'm not really going to have one main theme and, and three supporting points that, that support the main theme. Rather, we're going to be getting into some, some different things that this passage is re- revealing to us this morning. And at the end, I'll do a, a recap to kind of give us a, a, of an, an overview. Um, some of the things I share with you this morning might be new for you, and other things that I share might be just reminders for you. But either way, it's going to be very simple, and very straightforward, but I think it's going to be really good and really powerful for us this morning as well. So with all that said, uh, I want us to go to the Lord in prayer to really welcome the Spirit of our God into this place and into our hearts to really ask the Lord to to bless this time that we get to spend in His Word together as well. Okay? So let's pray. Father God, God, just as has already been said so many times this morning, God, this is just all about you. God, this is your place. God, these are your people. God, we are your people. God, this is your church. God, it's your word. It's your gospel. It's your creation. It's your design. God, it's all about you. And God, we thank you and we praise you that that is the case, God, because that is is life and that is good. And God, I pray that you would just pour out your spirit onto us in this place, God. God, that today, God, we would fall more in love with you. God, we would, we would leave this place even more committed, even more devoted to you, God, because you're just so worthy. God, you're so worthy, you're so lovable, you're so amazing. God, you make it easy to praise you and to worship you. And God, I just pray that this morning, God, that it would be you, God, through your spirit, speaking and moving through me and moving in all of our hearts and all of our lives. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Uh, so as I said, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning comes from Acts chapter 19, okay? And it's going to be Acts 19, uh, 11 through 20, all right? Uh, You can open up your Bibles there with me, or you can follow along on the screens behind me here. And I'm going to be reading from the NIV. So in Acts 19, 11 through 20, God's Word says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. 
He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their, source, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. All right, so this passage that we're going to be studying this morning is only, is only 10 verses in length. I was given 30 verses to preach on. I couldn't do it. Like, I got through 10 verses, and I was like, I can't go any further than this. Um, so we're going we're gonna to have a good time this morning. Um, so this is only 10 verses, but there is so much to learn and so much to unpack from, from these things. And as I said, we're going to just kind of walk through this uh, like a Bible study. So starting with the first two verses, God's word says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. All right. The first thing I want to point out to you this morning is that it's very, very significant that this passage does not say that Paul did miracles, but that God did miracles through Paul. Not that Paul did miracles, but that God did miracles through Paul. And we see this right off the bat in verse 11. It says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Very straightforward. And this may seem very simple, but this is very, very important for us to take note of when we're studying this passage. Because here's the thing. On our own, we can do nothing for the kingdom of God. On our own, we cannot truly accomplish anything for the kingdom of God. And on our own, we can bear no good fruit for the kingdom of God. Whether we're ministering to others in some way, or we're doing evangelism and sharing the gospel with not yet Christians, or or we're discipling a fellow Christian, or we are preaching a sermon, or we are leading a Bible study, or we we are just growing as a follower of Christ ourselves, on our own, we can do nothing. On our own, we can bear no good fruit for the kingdom of God. And our pride doesn't like hearing this very much, right? There might be a chord in you when I say that, that this, just a little off, right? Well, that's, that's the chord of your pride, right? But, but this is true. So we need to humbly accept this truth. And any time that good fruit is happening, any time that the, the kingdom of God is powerfully advancing, any time that, that things are really getting accomplished for the kingdom of God, it is God at work, And it is God on the move. So if we want to be people who bear good fruit, if we want to to be people who see the kingdom powerfully advance, we need to rely on God and walk in step with the Spirit of God. And again, this might seem so simple, but this is so foundational and so very important. To do anything for the kingdom of God, to bear any good fruit, we need God. And we can be tempted to think that we definitely need God to work through us in miracles, like we're seeing here in verse 11, right? But when it comes to other things, right, we're like, ah, I got it. I I can handle this. I can do this, right? But, But we have to resist that way of thinking because we need God for everything, for all fruit, for all advancement, right? And I don't, I don't want you to just hear this from me. I want to show you this from God's word this morning. In chapter 15 of the Gospel of John, our Lord Jesus Christ says this. He says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. And in Colossians 2.19, God's word says, They have lost connection with the head, and the head being Christ, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. In 1 Peter chapter 1, God's word mentions the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And this short phrase just tells us that sanctification, which is just a big word that means the growth of a Christian, comes from the Spirit of God, not from ourselves alone. And lastly, in Romans eleven thirty six, 36, God's word says, For from him and through him and for him are all things. 
And to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And there's so many other scriptures that support this truth as well. And this truth is so important for us to know and be reminded of. Because one, as I've just said, if, if we don't rely on God, and if we don't know this truth, guess what? We're not going to bear any fruit. Right? I, I remember very, very distinctly that the Holy Spirit spoke to me once. He said, Trev, are, are you doing ministry or are you bearing fruit? Because those things can look similar, but they're different, right? Because if I'm operating in my own strength, just doing ministry, that's one thing. But if I'm operating in the Lord's strength doing ministry, I'm going to bear fruit, right? And this is also so important because God is the one who is deserving of all of the credit and all of the praise and all of the worship and all of the adoration and all of the glory. This, this point makes this incredibly important. Because if we deceive ourselves into thinking that the powerful advancement of the kingdom of God and the good fruit of the kingdom of God and the influence and the ministry success is coming from ourselves, we will find ourselves giving praise, glory, and honor to ourselves and accepting it from others. But if we know and we see and we understand that the powerful kingdom advancement, the good kingdom fruit, the positive influence, and the ministry success is actually coming from God through us, not from us, but through us, then we will find ourselves rightfully giving the praise and the glory and the credit to God, and not to ourselves or any other mortal man. And I can so testify this to myself. Many of you who are here, who are here today know me. So, so you know that, that I, I meet with a lot of people. I disciple a lot of people. I do evangelism on UC and around our city all the time. I teach here on Sunday mornings in classes like, um, like Bud's. I, I lead an awesome life group on campus. All these kinds of things, right? And many of you know that there's even been such awesome fruit that has come from some of these things I've done as well. But let me tell you, as, as someone who's, who's, who's doing it, and, that, and that's not puff, puffing me up, but, but just, just as, as someone who's doing it, it's been God the whole time. It has been God at work the entire time. Right? The entire time. Right? Philippians 2.13 in God's word says, for it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. And guys, I can so testify to this. And I come back to this all the time because I've seen this in my life. I was a junior studying medicine here. Like, and, and now I'm on staff, right? Like, I, I, I did not come into, this was just all God's doing, right? When, when, he, when he brought me to himself and called me into ministry, right? And this isn't just for, for like, full-time vocational missionaries. This is for you, too. Because if you're a Christian, you're a missionary. That's that. If you're a Christian, you're a missionary. Okay? So we need God. And God is so willing to, 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 to move and to work through us. And with all of that said, and before we move on, I, I do want to be really clear about something. While it is God working in us and through us to bear good fruit and to advance his kingdom, we still have a significant role and a significant responsibility to play. And our role and our responsibility is to give God our willingness, to put our yes on the table for God, and to obey what God has called us to do. Okay, hear that this morning. We have a significant role and a significant responsibility. And when I say it's God working through us, that does not mean that we just suddenly black out and go on Holy Spirit autopilot mode, right, and go bear fruit and whatever, and then regain, regain consciousness in a new place in a new time. We're like, whoa, that was weird, right? That's not the way it works, right? Uh, rather, with our free will, we have a role and a responsibility to choose to obey what God has called us to do in his word and to obey what the Holy Spirit prompts us to do as he leads us through this life. And as we walk in obedience to God's word and his spirit, the power of God and the strength of God and the authority of God flows through us by his spirit. And guess what? His kingdom advances. The good fruit comes and it's just absolutely amazing. Okay? So it's God working through us. We have a significant role and significant responsibility to play. All right. With that said, let's, let's continue on in our Acts 19 passage this morning. The next section that I want to look at is Acts 19, 13 through 16. Right. And in Acts 19, 13 through 16, God's word says, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. 
they would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Okay. So it might be a little bit of an understatement to say that some pretty wild stuff is happening uh, in these verses, right? Um, but, but there's actually a lot of really good stuff that we can, we can learn and take away from this. And the first thing I want to highlight from what we're seeing here in these verses is that our God is not a transactional God. Right? Our God is not a transactional God. Our God is a relational and a personal God. These Jews who traveled around trying to drive out evil spirits, including these seven sons of Sceva, were trying to force God's hand to move. Or they were trying to tap into God's power and God's authority by boiling things down to some sort of transactional verbal formula or ritual or magical like, incantation like in Harry Potter. Right? If you just say it right, it's going to work. Right? It's just so transactional. But it obviously didn't work. And a big reason why it didn't work is because God, our God, is not a transactional God. He's a relational and a personal God. And these seven sons of Sceva were treating God as, as if he was a transactional God. And today we may read about what these seven sons of Sceva were trying to do, and we may think or say to ourselves, what on earth were these guys thinking? Like, come on. Right? That's so silly and so foolish. But to be honest, I think that we ourselves are oftentimes guilty of interacting with God in very transactional ways as well. For example, when we only go to God with our requests and our needs and our wants, when we are in a time of trouble or a time of difficulty, and that's it. Choosing to not spend any personal quality time with him in his presence, in his word, in worship, or in prayer, becoming roaring back to God in a time of trouble or difficulty, only to leave him in the dust when things are going well again. We're, we're interacting with God in a very transactional way. When we try to earn God's love, God's good favor, God's attention, God's blessing, or God's intervention in our lives by our own good merit or our own good deeds, rather than enjoying and delighting in and rejoicing in the great love, care, attention, and attention that God already gives to us every single day, we're interacting with him in a very transactional way. When we come to church on Sunday mornings just in an attempt to appease God or just to try and force the move of God's hand in our lives in some way, we are interacting with God in a very transactional way. And there are other ways, too, that we can tend to be very transactional in our interactions with God rather than relational and personal with him. But our God, through and through, is a relational and a personal God, not a transactional God. And Jesus wants to be known relationally and personally. So in your life and in your walk with Jesus, remember that he's a relational God and interact with him accordingly. Because God is a relational and a personal God and not a transactional God, we get to freely enjoy and rest in God's presence, God's love, God's goodness, God's power, and God's favor, simply for being his beloved children every single day. We can come to God in prayer with confidence and joy and boldness and peace, knowing that God will embrace us and welcome us because he is our good and loving father and we are his sons and daughters. We get to serve others and serve God from a place of being loved, valued, seen, and cherished by God, and not in order to be loved, valued, seen, or cherished by God. We get to spend personal quality time with God and truly enjoy that personal quality time with him with no underlying ulterior motives, no pressure, and no strings attached. And any kind of pressure or need to try and earn anything from God is completely wiped away. So praise God that he's a relational and a personal God. Now I want to focus in on verses 15 and 16 uh, in this section of our passage. Because uh, there's a few things I want to highlight from there. It says, One day the evil spirit answered them, and them being the seven sons of Sceva, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. 
And really, at first, it's almost kind of comical in some ways, right? But also very powerful at the same time. Um, And the first thing I want to point out to you from these verses is that demons and the devil himself are strong, powerful, intelligent, and real. Demons and the devil himself are strong, powerful, intelligent, and real. The reason that I say this is that here in the passage that we're studying this morning, we see that there are seven men, seven brothers, going up against one demon that, that has possessed a man. Seven verses one. All right? And the demon royally whoops the seven men. All, right? All at the same time. The text says that the demon, gave, the demon gave the seven brothers such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That is a whooping. Like these, these guys got their butts kicked, just to put it like plainly. Guys, demons and the devil himself are strong, powerful, intelligent, and real. And not only are they strong, powerful, intelligent, and real, they are actually stronger and more powerful than humans when humans are operating in their own strength and by their own power. Did you know that? Now, if I just left it there or stopped there, that would honestly be pretty frightening. It would be pretty scary, it would be pretty unsettling, but thankfully that's not all I have to say. Even though demons and the devil are strong, powerful, intelligent, and real, our God, who is for us, the living God, the Alpha and the Omega, the King of all kings, our God, Jesus Christ, is much stronger, is immeasurably more powerful, is infinitely more intelligent, and is victorious over all things, including all demons and the devil himself. That's good news. It's amazing news. And we know with certainty that these things are true because in, in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus encounters a man named Legion. And Legion was a man who was possessed by a great multitude of demons. And I actually think it's likely that Legion was not this man's real name. That that Legion was not this man's birth name. But that was a name at some point he adopted for himself. Because he started to identify with this great multitude of demons. This great legion of demons that had enslaved him for so long. His name was like Bob, Fred, I don't know, not Legion. And the word legion is actually an ancient military term. A legion was a title given to a group of soldiers that numbered anywhere between 3,000 and 6,000 men. Which means that this man was possessed by a great multitude of demons numbering somewhere between 3,000 and 6,000 demons at the same time. That's what he meant when he said, we are many. It's many. So in Mark chapter 5, we have Jesus and a man who was possessed by thousands of demons encountering each other. One Jesus versus at least 3,000 demons. And the result of this encounter? When Jesus approaches the man, the man throws himself down on the ground at the feet of Jesus in submission. And the, de- and the demons inside of the man beg Jesus not to torture them or torment because they knew they were no match for Jesus. But with his sovereign authority and his divine power, Jesus commands the demons to leave the man and bam, in an instant. Do you understand? 3,000 to 6,000 demons. And in an instant, bam, they're gone. 3,000 to 6,000 demons. In an instant. And the man is completely freed. And completely restored. So in Mark 5, we clearly see that even though demons are strong and they're powerful and they're intelligent and they're real, that Jesus is much stronger. Jesus is immeasurably more powerful. He's infinitely more intelligent and he is victorious over all demons and the devil himself. 
and the power and the strength and the authority that we see displayed from Jesus in Mark chapter 5 is the same power and strength and authority that is dwelling inside of every Christian because the Holy Spirit of Christ is dwelling inside of every Christian. Do you understand that that is the power that's living in you? That is the power. So even though demons are strong, powerful, intelligent, and real, as Christians, we are more than conquerors through Christ, just as Romans 8 tells us. And this is why the Apostle Paul had such a different experience when encountering demons in the sons of Sceva did. Paul's a Christian, so he had the Holy Spirit, and he had the, the power of God and the strength of God and the authority of God dwelling inside of him. But the sons of Sceva, they weren't Christians. So they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have this divine strength or power. So they had an awful experience when they encountered this demon. As Christians, we are more than conquerors through Christ. And I I do want to be clear again. Just because we have the Holy Spirit of Christ dwelling inside of us does not make us immune from or unaffected by spiritual warfare and spiritual attacks from the enemy. This is very important to make a note of. Just because we have the Holy Spirit does not make us immune from or unaffected by spiritual warfare and spiritual attacks. Rather than making us totally immune or totally unaffected by spiritual warfare, the Holy Spirit helps us, strengthens us, comforts us, guides us, and encourages us to resist or to flee or to cling to the truth or to do whatever else we need to do in response to the spiritual warfare that we may be experiencing so that we can get through it. So even though we have the Holy Spirit, we still need to be prepared and watchful and alert and humble and ready to fight with the help of the Holy Spirit. So we're not immune and not not unaffected by spiritual warfare. Before we move on to the last section of our main passage this morning, I want to point out and talk about what the demon says to the sons of Sceva in verse 15 of our Acts 19 passage. Because it's very, very interesting what the demon says to them. The demon says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And what this demon says actually reveals some really valuable things to us. First, it reveals that demons are consciously aware of people who are active threats to them. Demons are consciously aware of people who are active threats to them. Just think about this with me. Why did this demon know who Jesus and the Apostle Paul were? You think about that? It would make sense that the demon knew Jesus, but had no idea who Paul was, since Jesus is God. But the demon says that he knows Jesus, and he knows about the Apostle Paul as well. So how? Why? I think it's because Jesus and the Apostle Paul were both active threats against the demon and against the kingdom of darkness. Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul were such active threats against the demon and the kingdom of darkness because they were both saturated with divine power, divine strength, and divine authority from the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them, as we just talked about. And not only were Jesus and the Apostle Paul saturated with these things from the Holy Spirit, both of them were also very serious about and very committed to actively living their lives on mission for the gospel and for the kingdom of God. And because of these things, Jesus and the Apostle Paul were huge threats to the demon and the kingdom of darkness. Because Jesus and the Apostle Paul were such a threat, the demon had its eyes, its attention, and its mind on them. And what the demon says to the seven sons of Sceva also reveals that demons are seemingly unconcerned with people who aren't threats to them. The demon says, I know Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you bums? The demon in Acts 19 was totally unconcerned with the seven sons of Sceva. Because they weren't a threat to him, and clearly so. He just, he just, he whooped them. All right? They weren't a threat at all, because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And all this makes sense in the tactics of warfare. You focus on what your threat is, and, and, and you're unconcerned with who isn't a threat. Right? And here's how all of this affects us and applies to us today. Today. If you are serious about and committed to following Jesus and living your life on mission for the gospel of Christ and for the kingdom of God, as all true Christians are called to do, 
You are an active threat to demons, the devil, and the kingdom of darkness, just as Jesus and Paul were. And if you are an active threat to the demons and the devil and the kingdom of darkness, that means that they are consciously aware of you, that they know about you, and that they have their eyes on you. And in addition to that, if you are an active threat to the demons and the devil and the kingdom of darkness, that means that they will be seeking to launch attacks against you and will try to sabotage you and will try to trip you up or knock you off course with their attacks, lies, and schemes. So all of us need to be ready and prepared for these things. And I'm sharing these things in detail right now because I know that many of you right here in this room really are serious about and committed to following Jesus and living your lives on mission for the gospel. And that is awesome. Truly. Uh, like our staff team, we, we are, we are so, we're so proud of you. We love you so much. We're so moved by you. But your commitment, your devotion to Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom of God. We love it. Stay humble. But I want to encourage you in that. And I share this with you because I know that this is a room full of ambassadors of Christ. I know that the spiritual enemy is afraid of this room. He's concerned with this room. Not just this room in and of itself, but the people in it, us. Because so many of you are active threats to the kingdom of darkness, I want to help you to be ready and to be prepared for when spiritual warfare comes your way. And there are a number of different ways that that our spiritual enemies commonly seek to attack us and sabotage us and knock us off course. And on the screens behind me, you'll see some of these things. Number one, attacks on our identity, worth, and position in Christ. This is a very, very common form of spiritual warfare. We see this happening in the scriptures. Uh, I've experienced a lot in my own life, and I've seen it a lot in the lives of others as well. These attacks on our identity, worth, and position in Christ. And I share these things with you as well, so that if you see these things, your, your, your mind will go, oh, warfare. Right. It's really exposing the enemy to you right now. Next, heightened temptation to sin. This is also a very common form of spiritual warfare. Uh, And the spiritual enemy will sometimes even tempt us with things from our distant past. So be ready for that as well. And remember that God does not ever allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. And he always provides a way out so we can escape. Next, unresolved conflict with other Christians and bitterness. Sometimes the spiritual enemy will attempt to sow discord, strife, bitterness, and disunity into the body of Christ to fracture relationships, communities, movements, cultures, and momentum. So this is important for us to resist, and it can take a lot of humility to work through these things, but it's so important. Next, insecurity, self-doubt, discouragement, and apathy. Before I'm about to do evangelism, all this nails me at the same time. Who am I? I feel heavy. I feel apathetic. I feel like the last thing I want to do right now is do evangelism. If you know me and we're talking here or whatever, I will talk your ear off about evangelism, right? But I know it's 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 spiritual warfare that I'm that I'm encountering there those times. Next, difficulties and hardships in life. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, In my buds class, I I teach about spiritual warfare. uh, The second week, a little preview for you. (laughs) Um, And in in the spring semester, uh, I taught on spiritual warfare. Long story short, I taught, went home that night, went to bed. Um, Well, the next morning, Susie wakes me up very early in the morning and uh, telling me her her car had been smashed uh, while I was parked on our street that night. And I I walk out, I see it's her birthday too, and I'm like, oh man, like, dang. But just a, a few hours before, I had taught on spiritual warfare. I had taken the curtain and I had just ripped it open. Right, exposing our spiritual enemy to the entire class. And then that happens just a few hours later. Coincidence? I think not. Right? So it might, you might be in difficulties and hardships, but, but that's okay. Here I am. I'm fine. Yeah. Next, anxiety, depression, heaviness, fear, nightmares, exhaustion, and distractions. That's kind of through this conglomeration together with my last bullet point. Um... um all, all of these things can be, can be forms of spiritual warfare in our life. So be ready. Watch out for these things. And with all this said, do not let any of this scare you or intimidate you or cause you any kind of hesitation when it comes to following Jesus 
and being devoted to the gospel and the kingdom of God. So remember that your God is greater, stronger, bigger, better, more power, more powerful and victorious. And the Holy Spirit of God is inside of you. And what we are fighting for as we live our lives on mission for the gospel of Christ and the kingdom of God is worth going to war for. And I, and I know this might sound even a little weird, but whenever I'm facing spiritual warfare, I'm actually kind of encouraged. Um, because it's like, oh wow, okay. Spiritual enemy's trying to slow me down, trying to sabotage me, trying to knock me off course. That must mean I'm doing something right, right? So it actually kind of backfires on the spiritual enemy in that way, which is pretty cool. Um, so just be, be ready, be prepared, be watchful for uh, spiritual warfare, okay? Um, let's move on now in our main passage from that Acts 19 um, passage we're looking at this morning. Um, the next section I want to look at is Acts 19, 17 through 20, which is the last section that we're going to be studying together this morning. And guys, please continue to stick with me here, okay? Uh, up to the end of the sermon, because there's some really really powerful stuff um, in these verses that I want you to see. Okay? So Acts 19, 17 through 20. God's word says, when this, and th- this being the, the event that happened with the seven sons of Sceva, uh, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. There is so much in these verses. Um, We're just going to dive right in. Verse 17 says, When this became known, to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And other versions translate this verse to say that the name of Jesus Christ was greatly magnified among the people in response to the news of what happened with the seven sons of Sceva. When I read this verse, it leads me to ask a question. And that question is this. Why did these people in Ephesus respond to this news with choosing to hold the name of Jesus in high honor? Why did these people in Ephesus respond to this news by choosing to greatly magnify the name of Jesus? Well, the answer to this question is what I want to talk about as we study this verse. I think, about, I think that the people chose to respond in the way that they did because after hearing what, about what happened with the seven sons of Sceva, they realized that Jesus Christ was the supreme king of all creation and that he was the all-powerful God. Because I'm confident that these people living in Ephesus already knew about the stories and testimonies of Jesus himself driving demons out of people who were enslaved. So when these people found out what a demon did to the seven sons of Sceva, the people started to grasp just how powerful, just how strong, just how mighty, and just how sovereign Jesus Christ truly was. And in response, many of the people wisely chose to honor him and respect him and submit to him and follow him. And guys, from this, there's a very important truth for us and for literally everyone on the planet. And it's this. The news and the power and the kingship and the reality of Jesus Christ demands a response from every single person. Why don't you think about that? The news and the power and the kingship and the reality of Jesus Christ demands a response from all people, from every single person. Many of the Jews and Greeks in Ephesus wisely chose to honor Jesus and submit to Jesus and follow Jesus after realizing he was the supreme king of all creation and that he was the all-powerful God. And this morning I want to ask you, what is your response to the news and the power and the kingship and the reality of Jesus Christ? Are you you responding by embracing him, trusting in him, loving him, worshiping him, and obeying him to the best of your ability? Or are you responding to him with indifference, skepticism, resistance, passiveness, disobedience, rejection, and self-reliance? The news and the power and the kingship and the reality of Jesus Christ demands a response from all people. What is your response?
and looking at our Acts 19 passage again, we see that the text actually gives us more detail of the kind of response that many of the Jews and Greeks in Ephesus had in response to the power and kingship and reality of Christ. The text tells us that many of the people who became believers came and openly confessed their sins, and many of the people who had practiced sorcery, which Galatians 5 tells us is sinful, brought their sorcery scrolls together and burned them to ashes. And what we're seeing here is confession of sin and repentance of sin. And these verses give us an amazing display of biblical confession of sin and biblical repentance of sin. And I'll explain what I mean by this being a, being a display of biblical confession and biblical repentance. First, I want to point out, by openly confessing their sins, these brand new believers did not value or idolize their, their own public image, their own reputation, their own status, or their own glory over the glory and the goodness of God. In our current day, there are a lot of people, even a lot of Christians, who seem to value or prioritize or idolize their own public image, their own reputation, their own status, their own comfort, and their own glory over the glory and goodness of God by choosing to not confess their sins. But this is not right. We cannot be people who value and prioritize and idolize our own image. We've got to, we've got to value and worship God in his image, right, in his glory. These brand new believers did not value or idolize their own public image or reputation or status. And in this way, this is the first way that they were displaying biblical confession of sin. And second, we see here in these verses that confession of sin and repentance of sin are being done together. Biblical confession and biblical repentance are inseparable. This is exactly the way it should be. Confession of sin and repentance of sin should always go together, be done together. And God's word repeatedly exhorts us to confess our sins to God and to trusted brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's important that we aren't just legalistically or mindlessly going through the motions when it comes to confessing our sins to God and to others. It's so important that the confession of our sins to God and to others is repentant confession. Not confessing your sins to God and to others just because you have to, not confessing your sins to God and to others just because the Bible tells you to, not confessing your sins to God and to others just because others are doing it, but rather confessing your sins to God and to others because you are truly repentant of your sins. Because you want to put an end to the specific sin or specific sins in your life. Because you are genuinely remorseful about disobeying God and grieving God's heart. And because you hate sin too, just as God does confession of sin and repentance of sin, sin should always go together. And here in Acts 19, that's exactly what we're seeing. And that leads me to the next thing I want to point out and talk about from these verses. I want to specifically talk about the repentance of these people in Ephesus who were previously practicing sorcery. The text says that they brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And as I said previously, this is an amazing display of biblical repentance. These brand new Christians in Ephesus realized and understood that if they were going to follow Jesus, they had to be all in and fully devoted to Jesus and the kingdom of God. These brand new Christians in Ephesus realized and understood that they now belonged to Jesus and that there was now a call on their life from Jesus to die to sins and live for righteousness, just as 1 Peter 2.24 says. These brand new Christians in Ephesus realized and understood that they they could not be one foot in and one foot out when it came to following Jesus, but that it was an all-in and total commitment kind of thing. And we can see that they understood these things based off the kind of repentance they were displaying here in Acts 19. Guys, when we look at this, do you understand the magnitude of the repentance that we're seeing here? Like, this isn't just another detail. This is... Like, do you understand the magnitude of what is happening here? These brand new Christians in Ephesus who had previously practiced sorcery literally destroyed the instruments of their sin. And they destroyed them to such a degree that there was no way to get them back. There was no going back. There was no retrieving them. They literally burned them to ashes. And the passage tells us that the value of the scrolls that they burned to ashes was about 50,000 drachmas. And to put that into perspective for you, a man would have to work every single day with no days off for 137 years straight 
to earn 50,000 drachmas. 137 years straight, no days off, to earn 50,000 drachmas. And in one day, it's all burned. But it didn't matter what the cost was of whatever these brand new Christians were losing from, from repenting in the way that they did. Because they knew with certainty that they were gaining true riches and glorious treasures in Christ that sin in the world could not provide. And Jesus and his name and his glory was worth it. And this kind of repentance that we're seeing from these brand new Christians in Acts 19 is not some sort of radical or extra spiritual or overachiever kind of repentance. The kind of repentance that we see from these brand new Christians in Ephesus is right in line with what God calls us to do in his word. Colossians 3 says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Not just like, try not to do it, reduce it, put it to death, kill it, terminate it. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. In Ephesians 5, God's word tells us there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Not even a hint. That's the standard. We try and mix our standards in. This is the biblical standard. Not even a hint of sin. In Romans 6, it says we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? There are plenty of other scriptures that speak into this as well. So the kind of fully devoted repentance that we're seeing from these brand new Christians in Acts 19 is actually meant to be the normal standard of repentance for all Christians when it comes to all sins. This right here. Like, this is the decision. This is the commitment to Christ right here. This is the commitment. Jesus is worthy of this kind of repentance. But instead of walking in this kind of biblical repentance that we're seeing in Acts 19, so many Christians in the modern day tend to walk in a kind of repentance where they just put the instruments of their sins on the shelf, where they can easily access them again in case they want to return to their sins, or if they want to dabble in their sins from time to time, or if they want to have a distant relationship with their sin. And this kind of repentance that so many modern day Christians choose to walk in is much different than the kind of biblical repentance that we see in Acts 19 where the Christians were burning and destroying the instruments of their sin, and in doing so, putting their sins to death. And this is the kind of repentance, this biblical repentance, that we need to have and that we need to walk in. And here this morning, I want to challenge all of you, and I want to encourage you to walk in biblical repentance where you aren't just putting your sins and the instruments of your sins on the shelf where you can easily access them again, but you are burning and you are destroying the instruments of your sin. And by doing so, working on putting your sins to death, just as you're called by God to do. And with that said, that's a wrap on our study of Acts 19 this morning. As I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, there are only 10 verses that we studied this morning from Acts 19. But there is a lot of really, really good stuff in here. And as I come to a close, I just want to give you a brief recap of some of the big points. Because I know we were kind of in different places. So I just want to give you a brief recap to give you a refresher as you go out. Number one, to do anything for the kingdom of God and to bear any good fruit for the kingdom of God, whether it be in our ministry or our own walk with Christ, we need God. Any good fruit that's, that comes, any, any powerful advancement that's happening, it's God on the move through us. Next, while it's God working through us to bear good fruit and to advance his kingdom, we still have a significant role and significant responsibility to give God our willingness, our yes, and our obedience to his word and to his spirit. And he gets all the glory. Next, we talked about how our God is not a transactional God, but that our God is a relational and a personal God through and through. So we talked about demons and the devil himself are strong, powerful, intelligent, and real beings. And that spiritual warfare and spiritual attacks against those who are active threats come from, these, from, from, from demons and the devil. But our God, Jesus Christ, is stronger, greater, bigger, better, more powerful, more intelligent, and victorious over all things, including the demons and the devil himself. And the spirit of Christ is dwelling in us. As Christians, we are more than conquerors through Christ. 
the news and the power and the kingship and the reality of Christ demands a response from all people. And then we talked about biblical confession of sin and biblical repentance of sin. It's my hope, my prayer, the Holy Spirit has been and will continue to be working and moving in all of our hearts and all of our lives from what we studied, what we talked about in Acts 19 this morning. If you'd like to talk to someone, or pray with someone about any of the things I shared with you today or about anything happening in your life, there's going to be people standing around the room during the second worship set with prayer lanterns on. They would love to talk with you. They would love to pray with you. Um, they'd love to just process through things with you, whatever you need. And I'll be back there as well if you'd like to talk. I love you guys so much. It's always a joy to be here um, every week and, and to do life with you. Uh, it's such, such a joy of mine. I know it's even a greater joy of, of Jesus's, which is cool. Um, but uh, let's pray. Jesus, you're so worthy. Jesus, you are our good shepherd. You are our king. Jesus, you are our treasure. And Jesus, thank you that, Jesus, you don't have to change. Jesus, you don't have to better yourself at all to be a treasure. Jesus, you are already such a treasure, such a joy. You're already so amazing, Jesus. And Jesus, we just thank you for coming and for saving us. That Jesus, even in our sin, Jesus, even when we were your enemies, Jesus, that you came and you died for us. Jesus, you came and you rescued us. You redeemed us from a life where we, were in, where we would just be enslaved to sin, where we would just be enslaved to our, to our spiritual enemies, where we would just be left with the, with the empty ways of life of this world. But Jesus, you came and you saved us. You redeemed us. You brought us back to life. And Jesus, we thank you. Jesus, we, we love you. Jesus, we're so moved by you. Holy Spirit, I pray that anything and everything from you, Lord, would, would penetrate our hearts this morning, would stay with our hearts and our souls and our minds this morning, and would change us. Lord, we would hear you in your love, just calling us higher, calling us deeper with you. Surrounded by your grace, surrounded by your love, surrounded by your faithfulness but calling us higher and deeper with you. Jesus, we don't want to just worship you with our, with our lips. Jesus, we want to worship you with our hearts. We want to worship you with our lives, our life song. And Jesus, I pray that we would. Jesus, I pray that we would launch attacks against sin, confessing, repenting, destroying the instruments of our sin. Walking in step with you, Jesus. Being in love with you, Jesus. Being so captured and so captivated by you, Jesus. Every single day. God, we thank you that you are a relational and a personal God. Because God, you are the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.